contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. It's a Super Bowl edition of the business of sports with probably the one person that more than anyone is responsible for the growth of the Super Bowl. It has morphed into a national holiday from what it was, just kind of a game many years ago. We'll have that person who brought it to where it is now on the podcast. His name is Jim Stieg. Be with him in a minute. The Business of Sports is presented by BetOnline.ag. It's your online sportsbook experts. And they're the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use promo code PODCAST1. You'll get that 50% sign-up bonus today, betonline.ag. First, my Brant's rant of the week, and I'll go to the business of basketball, because unlike football, the sport we talk about most, there is true leverage on behalf of the players, at least certain players, in the NBA that's so different than the NFL. Anthony Davis, as everyone should know by now who follows sports, is sort of making demands, or at least through his agent, who happens to be LeBron James' boyhood friend and LeJohn, LeBron James' agent, Rich Paul, basically saying, hey, New Orleans, in so many words, New Orleans Pelicans, where Davis is currently a member of, you may want to get rid of him, trade him, get value, because he's not going to sign an extension. And now Davis not only has the rest of this year left, he has next year, so he has a year and a half under contract with the Pelicans, but... We know how it works. You're not going to sign an extension. Are you going to get value? We have a trade deadline of February 7th, which is approximately a week from now. Or they will have to trade him in the offseason. I mean, I guess they could play it out, but you know how this works. He's not going to be a happy camper next year. He seems to be okay playing it out this year. And that's where we are with Anthony Davis. I guess my point here is that In the business of sports, and I teach this, the key words are competitive balance. And and what these leagues try to do is to weigh the balance of power as much as they can. How can they do that? Well, they do that through rules and regulations, a lot of which have to be agreed with the players. So when you talk about unions, it's in their best interests to work for the whole, the good of the whole, rather than the good of the select few. Now, the NBA Players Association is a little different than NFL players because you have stars at the negotiating table. Chris Paul's the president of the NBA PA. LeBron James is a vice president. In the NFL, you have kind of middle-of-the-road players like a Jeff Saturday, like a Dominic Foxworth, like some of these players at the helm, Eric Winston, that are more your middle-of-the-road players, down-the-line players even, than your superstars who don't seem to get involved in bargaining. That aside, what we have in the NBA are incentives in the CBA for players to stay where they are. And those incentives, what other kind of incentives can you have than financial? So if LeBron James stayed in, say, Cleveland the first time, or stayed in Miami the second time, or stayed in Cleveland the third time instead of going to the Lakers, he could have made a lot more money. If Chris Bosh had stayed in Toronto, if Kevin Durant had stayed in Oklahoma City, if Paul George had stayed in Oklahoma, if Kawhi Leonard had stayed in San Antonio. But they leave. 
and they leave, again, I'm talking in generalities here, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million potential dollars on the table. In other words, if they sign extension with the incumbent team, they can do, and I'm talking basics here rather than particulars, basically another year of guaranteed contracts. So instead of five years, they could do six years. Instead of six years, they could do seven years. And they would have cap advantages, the home team would, and they could make upwards of 20, 30, 40 million dollars by staying. More money on the cap, or more money allotted at the beginning of the contract, and that extra year works out to a tremendous amount of money. So my rant here is, listen, you can put all these financial incentives for players like Anthony Davis to stay in New Orleans, but he wants to leave. And why does he want to leave? Because of the opportunity to win, because of a better place, because he wants to play with LeBron at some point. Whatever it is, what can you do? So here's the question. What can you do? What the NBA has tried to answer with its Players Association are things like this Supermax, which has worked for a Steph Curry, for a James Harden. But is it going to work for all these stars that want to move on? And that's the problem with smaller markets. Now, Oklahoma City did keep Russell Westbrook and got Paul George to resign. That's a success story. We need to see more of those if we're really going to believe in competitive balance, if we're really going to believe that the system works. Because what happens is a player like Durant or LeBron or Anthony Davis doesn't really, I hate to say it, doesn't really need that extra $30 million. And they go on, they make so much from shoe deals and marketing and, of course, playing on winning teams when they move along. So what we have in the NBA, unlike the NFL, is we have players dictating terms. That is so rare in a business of sports that's tilted towards management in almost every possible way. I say it all the time. I did 10 years of negotiations for the Green Bay Packers. The number of times where I felt I did not have the leverage, I could count on one hand. You know, maybe a Brett Favre deal, maybe a top-line free agent. But that's so few. Or, I, I mean... It just doesn't happen. And now you have these players flexing their muscles in the NBA through their agents. They're getting fined. That's no big deal to them. And it happens. So in the business of basketball, we really have a balance of power shift towards the superstars dictating terms. How do we deal with it? Well, the CBA tries through financial incentives to stay. That's not enough. That's not working. So there we are. We have a issue in the NBA about the balance of power, competitive balance, being disrupted by superstars who have all the leverage. CBA tries to answer it. That's not enough. How do we deal with it next CBA? Do we have a super, super, super max? Instead of making $40 million more, they make $80 million more staying. Now, now you're talking about big-time money. I don't know. Would Anthony Davis stay in New Orleans for an extra $100 million? You'd have to think that would make a difference. But you just never know. So what's going on in the NBA is the Pelicans have to deal with this Anthony Davis situation. Were I the Pelicans, I'd hold an auction right now through February 7th. You know your leverage only gets better as we get towards 4 p.m. or whatever time of day that is on February 7th. And if you don't like the offer, so you turn it down. But they should be getting a bounty of picks and players for Anthony Davis. And if they don't, they don't. They hold the cards ultimately. Now, we get to the summertime, and maybe teams offering have a little more leverage than the Pelicans. But right now, 
Anthony Davis have put the Pelicans in a tough spot, but he put them in a spot of advantage in least in negotiating terms with teams like the Lakers. Nope. Keep saying it. Nope. Not good enough to get Davis. Whatever you're offering, not good enough. And whatever the Lakers are offering today, you got to turn that down because it'll be better tomorrow. It'll be better from February 7th. <laughs> and so we have a high stakes game of poker negotiating dictated by Anthony Davis, who may be stuck in New Orleans at least through the end of this year because the offers aren't good enough. Now, if he dictates he only wants to play in L.A., now you've got a tough situation because then the the Pelicans can't get the best offer. And they may just deal with a disgruntled player beyond this year. That's going to be a tougher situation. But we can talk about it in the summer. Right now, teams should be lining up to get Anthony Davis. The Pelicans are in a decent spot. If it gets past February 7th, then we have some more deliberating to do on all sides, but we'll talk about it then. But that's my rant on the business of basketball dictated now by superstar players like Anthony Davis. He is dominating the news cycle at a time where we're in the Super Bowl and other things going on, baseball free agency. What we have is Anthony Davis in little New Orleans. They seem to be in the news a lot with the Saints getting robbed. Uh, So here we are, Anthony Davis dictating terms to the Pelicans, to the league. We'll see what happens. Now a word from MetPro. It's a proven platform to help people transform their bodies. Listen, I talked to Angela Poli last week on the podcast. These things don't work. These things meaning diets. But MetPro is different. It's based on data. It's based on strategy. Their team, and I know I use one of them, they got industry-leading experts. They challenge the generalized health guidance. They teach people how to optimize their performance goals. They're not guessing. They're using your data. They identify best nutrition and training. They profile us to get our best out of us. So many people spend hours training every day but and fail when it comes to nutrition and performance, but you can master it with your coach at metpro.com. The experts are trained to take those results and translate into simple action steps, what you should eat, how you should train, what your strategy is. They'll work one-on-one with you to identify your specific response to diet and activity and make adjustments based on your personal goals and lifestyle needs. So go to metpro.co slash BOS, metpro.co slash BOS, business of sports. Now let's get to our guest. Our guest is Jim Steig. Jim Steig from 1979 to 2004 ran the Super Bowl. In addition to the Pro Bowl and other NFL events, But we are talking about a national holiday. We're talking about something that has transformed America, this Super Bowl. It didn't used to be like that. And Jim Steig, hired by Pete Rozelle as a young guy at age 29, was given that role. And what a job he did from changing the dynamic of the game, changing the venues for the game, changing the entertainment, whether it's National Anthem, where he started with Diana Ross, whether it's halftime with the U2, really changing things after 2001. All of that is ahead with Jim Steig, the man behind the Super Bowl, now on the Business of Sports podcast. No other person I could think of to have on the Business of Sports podcast this week than Jim Steig, responsible for making the Super Bowl what it is, I think, more than any other person we could get on the podcast. Jim Steig, welcome. Good to have you, my friend. 
It's good to be here. I'm glad you think so highly of me. I, I need to write that down somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'll put out all the uh, hosannas on this podcast for you because yep. the Super Bowl is the biggest one-day sporting event maybe in the world. Uh, I think that's maybe not even subject to argument. The whole business of sports, business of the world, at least this country seems to stop on Sunday. But it's much more than that, and we'll talk about that. I guess what I like to sort of take listeners inside and sort of deconstruct guests in terms of what got you to being at the league and running the Super Bowl, we'll get to that. But sort of take us up to that moment. I, I believe when you were hired by Pete Rozelle, you were like 29 years old. So give us a little bit of background. So many people listening want to know how to get into sports and other people's paths. So tell us about yours. Well, I... I went to undergrad at Miami of Ohio, which thankfully we have another Miami of Ohio alum now in, in the yeah. Super Bowl this year, Mr. McVay, and, and certainly Chris Shula falls into that too now. Right. Um, so it's, uh, I went there, got a political science degree, worked for years as an accountant, decided, you know, maybe I'll go to law school and try to get a JD MBA. And then I thought, I don't know if I can put up with four years of that. <laughs> so I went and got an MBA from Wake Forest and was fortunate enough that that was like the second year of the program. And so we had a lot of freedom in what we could do and develop. And I had an interest in sports. And so I did some independent studies around that. And then when I came back my second year, Christmas, my second year, my father challenged me, well, okay, go get a job in sports. So I fired off. I know this is something foreign to everybody these days. I sent letters to every, <laughs> every sports franchise I could think of, except those in New York. So since I was from Boston, I was never going to work for anybody in New York. Uh, <laughs> okay. So I, uh, I was fortunate enough that my resume came across the desk of Joe Robbie with the Dolphins. And he had some connection because his last um, client in his law practice was the Minnesota Candy and Tobacco Association. Mm. Somehow, in the back of his mind, he connected R.J. Reynolds with Wake Forest and, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I got in the door and got down there, got an interview, and got hired as an accountant for all of twelve thousand dollars a year. Uh, and you know, in those days front offices were small. I think we had sixteen people in the front office. Mm. Uh, and I literally was there a month, and was he came walking to my office and says, uh, "I'm putting you in charge of team travel." <laughs> okay, great. He said, "And we got a road trip to Minnesota next week, so get to work." So um, I, I got an awful lot thrown at me in a very short period of time. Uh, he took very good care of me, you know, was treating me almost like one of the family. Went to a league meeting in my first year there. I was all of a sudden at a league meeting, went in with uh, Don Shula, and I always sat down. I sat next to Paul Brown across from George Hallis mm. at 26 wow. years old. So, and so I got a lot of exposure to the league uh, at that point. And got a, got the chance to speak at league meetings and things like that, which were great. Um, and got everything you could possibly want to do with a club, you know. From I mean, we we negotiated the then unheard of two hundred fifty thousand dollar year contract for Bob Greasy, um, right. you know, which was as high as it could ever be in seventy eight. Um, but you know, got involved with that Orange Bowl negotiations and kind of in charge of everything at a very young age, and then. Got approached by uh, uh, Pete, you know, that he had an opportunity for me. So I went up and visited with him. You, you know, you one of those days when you walk in, you say, 
here's my wish list of all the things I'd like to have if I took a new job. Right. And I walked in and I did not say a word. And he literally went down the wish list and ticked every one of them off. <laughs> and how did you get I to wanted. be in front of Pete Rosell with him offering you what you wanted? It's just you got the notice of him through what you were doing in Miami, through through the Robbies. How, yeah, how did I, that happen? We had a, well, it was interesting because the Dolphins were hosting the Super Bowl in 79. And at issue at that point in time was the t- allocation of Super Bowl tickets, as you remember well from your days. Right. Trying to, it's always a fight. Right. Until we put it in permanent allocation. And it was an annual thing. So they league office wanted to get more tickets, was what it came down to. And the host team got 25% of the allocation. And it was important to us because it was, you know, season ticket holders and things like that. Mm-hmm. Those days, the annual meeting was a week long, and Pete, as only could be his masterful way, did not bring the issue up on Monday, did not bring it up on Tuesday, did not bring it up on Wednesday, did not bring it up on Thursday. Joe Robbie went home, brought it up first thing Friday. (laughs) And the guy in the room at that point in time with all the owners is me and Shula. (laughs) And Shula, Shula, of course, turns to me and says, this is your problem, not mine. So... I think the way I handled myself at that moment um, and how I dressed it, what ended up happening was the deal we made was they took 3,000 tickets off the top before we applied the percentages, you know, gave those to the league office. So, our, you know, we lost 1,000 tickets, but everybody else lost a few and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. That was the compromise. And I'll, I'll never forget, I went downstairs right afterwards and called Joe on the payphone. Right. <laughs> what what happened. And Pete walks by, pats me on the back and says, I think that went pretty well, don't you? (laughs) Of course. So, you know, it was just, I think we had a, I won't say, I got to know him through that uh, and other things. I mean, Joe was on the management council, did not want to go to management council meetings. So I was sitting, you know, with four or five other owners through all the management council meetings as we were going through the labor negotiations in 78. So I really got a chance to get a lot of exposure there. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of how he got to know me. And uh, and so what did he offer in. you? Yeah. He brought me in and he said, listen, I've got a job for you. I can't tell you what it is, but you're really going to like it. <laughs> okay. And of course, he offered me everything I wanted. And I said, well, you know, I, if there's one guy in the world I can trust, it's him. So, I mean, if, if the commissioner of commissioners is going to offer you a job, I think you decide you're going to go with it. Right. And so I went down to Miami that year and he wanted me to study what was taking place at the Super Bowl in Miami, go around and see everything, learn everything I could do, keep my eyes, ears open to what was taking place, then go to the Pro Bowl the next week in, in Los Angeles and do the same thing and then write up a report, you know, what I observed and the things that we might be able to get better and that sort of stuff. I did that and about you know, 10 days to two weeks later, he calls me in his office and he says, uh, Okay, here's what the job is. I'm now putting you in charge of the Super Bowl, the Pro Bowl, the draft, and everything we're doing outside of the league office. <laughs> uh, you know, Don Weiss and Jim Heffernan and Joe Brown and, and Bill Granholm had been doing that, and he wanted them more in the office. And Weiss had gotten a promotion to the number two guy in the league, and he, he didn't want him out traveling doing Super Bowl stuff. And so I was now the guy that was doing that. And so that was how it all started. And I'll say this is I was scared to death, (laughs) you know, literally the first couple of years about what was going on, but it took a while to get used to, but uh, I couldn't ask for a better boss. 
So you're working on the Super Bowl starting 1979. Take us inside what it was like then and what changes you started to see you needed to make to sort of take us on the on the path to where it is today. And I know there's a lot of a lot of steps along the way, but as you started out changing the Super Bowl from what it was to what it is. Well, I think the thing, you know, like I said, the first couple of years, I was kind of just holding on to my job and, and making, <laughs> right. you know, big steps of what was taking place. The game, I think, that really changed everything for me was the one in Detroit in 82. Um, I was there as part of the award of that game in March of 79. Uh, nobody else had, nobody else in the league office had done anything Super Bowl-wise in Detroit, so it was, it was kind of all my baby, <laughs> right. you know, as far as selecting everything from the, you know, which hotels would be used for the teams and the practice sites and the party sites and everything we were going to do inside the stadium and the halftime shows, and all that, it became more mine. And because it was new, um, you know, you were, you weren't going back and trying to, it's not going back to Miami for the fifth time. Right. And just went up and, and bug dusting off what you did the last time. So that really gave me a lot of confidence there at doing it. Now, we had a awful, you know, ice storm, snowstorm there, which we couldn't help to do anything about. But, uh, you know, did a lot of things there, you know, reached out. That was the beginning, I think, of when the, the entertainment around the game kind of started there because our anthem singers had historically been, you know, Tom Sullivan. I probably don't remember him. But he was a blind entertainer mm. that, you know, made some news. And the Colgate Five. Uh, we had Pete wanted to get in in 1980. I think we had Cheryl Ladd, who's you know on the um, TV show, right? right. Uh, and, and then uh, Don wanted Helen O'Connell to sing the anthem at Super Bowl 15. <laughs> and, and so, okay, so I'm kind of going. We're, we're not going anywhere here. So I remember walking into Pete's office and saying, "Listen, this is what I want to do for the anthem." At, at Super Bowl 16, there's only one name I can go after in Detroit, and that's Diana Ross. And I remember him looking at me going, yeah, you got no shot in hell at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go ahead, kid, do whatever you want to. And so we went and met with her, and we booked her. And and I think that changed a lot as far as the entertainment went. Now, now the anthem became something that other celebrities – you know, singers all of a sudden thought was something they could do. Right. And so that was, that really made a difference. Um, but I think after, I think really in the early eight, it was all about uh, making sure the game day game, you know, experience there, you know, concessions, parking, you know, uh, what's happening pregame, halftime, that sort of stuff. It was all about trying to improve that as best you can, given where we wanted to go. Now, three years later, we're at Stanford, you know, in, in a place that, you know, as you know, just like my wife, it right. is the farm. Right. And that stadium was literally the farm. You know, <laughs> it was a wood burn, wood beams placed with two-by-fours on the top of them, right? Right. Uh and so the things we had to do there, we spent about three and a half million dollars, which seems like a drop in the ocean these days, but to rebuild the press box, build locker rooms, to 
build out concession areas. And I think that really helped us get some get me with a lot of feet on the ground of what we wanted to do. That, that was the, really the beginning of corporate hospitality because everybody was staying in San Francisco and, you know, coming down 101 and getting off on Barcadero was going to be a real pain in the neck getting in there. So we need to get as many people in or as early as we can. And that's how the corporate hospitality, we had 26 tenths with corporations in them at that game. And I think the previous high was four. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it's hard to believe a lot of stuff wasn't there then. We're so used to corporate hospitality and, and over-the-top parties and everything else. And you're sort of describing an era where I think I read something by you saying that you saw one of these Super Bowls with those paper, those paper or cloth banners hanging around. And you're like, we got to get rid of this. So you're sort of yeah. talking about professionalizing the the sort of uh, hospitality entertainment experience that was never done before. Yeah, yeah and, and even even the look of the stadium. I mean, nobody put field wall banners up and nobody put, you know, flags and stuff around the stadium and, you know, street pole banners run through the wood. I mean, Stanford, you kind of had to. Yeah. You were still kind of, I hate to say, lipstick on a pig, but that's what you were trying to do at that point. And make sure everybody felt that way. I mean, shoot, do you remember the toughest thing there? The biggest thing I learned at that one was that, you know, there were no restrooms. Everything was a porta potty. Mm. And one thing you never think about a porta potty doesn't have lights. Oh, right. So, and of course, at Stanford didn't have lights either. So we had to bring in portable lights um, for that game, Musco. That was kind of the beginning of Musco, which is now everywhere. Yeah. Um, but doing that, doing that game and I, we brought him in for, I kind of want to say it was Stanford, Notre Dame is our test game. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, you go in the restroom, you go in the porta potty and there's nothing, you're in the dark. <laughs> so we figured out we had to string lights through the porta potties to make sure, you know, we had lights to get it. Everybody could go in those. So there was a lot of things we did there that gave us a lot of confidence going forward and what we wanted to do. We ended up with, a guy by the name of Jerry Anderson, who unfortunately died last year, uh, we brought in through a connection with Ron Wabinski, you know, the, the legendary architect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jerry then was our architect that helped us put all those things together and, you know, created a business now that thrives because architects do all this work, whether it's Olympics or Final Fours and certainly Super Bowls or whatever. And uh, But that was the beginning of that. So totally different look and things changed. I, I think it was Stanford that really caused a lot of that and Detroit building up my confidence. <laughs> so what was, what was the ballpark revenue? What was the ballpark revenue back then when you talk about generation from the Super Bowl? Well, I can kind of remember the first time we got to like 10 million as, as what we were making on game day. And right. it was in the late eight. Okay. Um, somebody I know tweeted out the other day saying he was talking about the last time the Los Angeles Rams were in the Super Bowl and ticket prices were $75. And I tweeted back to him and said, no, they were 30 <laughs> at the Rose Bowl in 1980. And he, he was kind of like, oh, my God. And then somebody else tweeted and says, yeah, I've got one of those. They were 30 <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, that was a $3 million gate. Um, which was kind of unheard of at that point in time in football. Um, Because I remember when I I was with the Dolphins, 
we went and played the Bucks in a preseason game, and that was like the first million-dollar gate, wow. you know, that the Dolphins had ever experienced, you know, in a game. So, um, yeah, it, it was kind of a hurt. And then when ticket prices obviously go up to, you know, seventy-five to a hundred dollars, you get you get yourself to the Rose Bowl in '87. It's easy to get over ten million. Yeah, I think what you're sort of painting for the audience here is really you've made this game into much more of an experience for fans than about obviously the game is the key but the experiential part of it and you know so take us into kind of the the 90s and uh, 00s as you developed this game into or you watched it firsthand become from what it was you talked about an inflection point being the detroit game uh and diana ross but now, you know, it's, it's, you talked about uh, anthem singers. Now, halftime, you know, it's Justin Timberlake, it's Janet Jackson, and you can talk about that. And it's Coldplay, and it's U2, and it's Beyonce, and it's Katy Perry. So it's become much, sort of take us through sort of the next evolution uh, of the game and the entertainment. Well, yeah. I think the next thing that really came, I, you know, I've, I've got a lot of vices in my life. Yeah. Um, Good news is they're not really bad vices, uh, but one of them is I, I was always a baseball card collector, you know. And yeah. so when when you know the card explosion took place in the eighties, um, late eighties, uh, you know I was I, I'm collecting them, you know. Everybody in the league knew I was and that sort of stuff, and and uh, dating back to my time in Boston in the fifties, you know. So uh, we started a. I decided let's do a card show at the Super Bowl. Where else is a better place to do a card show than the Super Bowl? I got more people with disposable income right. than I could ever think of. I mean, who else is going to buy a, you know, $50,000 Mickey Mantle rookie card than some of these guys at this thing? So in New Orleans in 90, we did the first Super Bowl card show and we drew 40,000 people. Wow. <laughs> Which was bigger than the national convention. Um, <laughs> so the next year, we went to Tampa and I said, well, we, we, here's the next evolution of this is that I thought we created a thing called NFL town square. It sounds very simple, but the idea was like a shopping mall mm-hmm. where the card show would be one of the anchor stores. The other anchor store would be a merchandise store. And in the middle, we put a movie theater, you know, with NFL films. And then we fill in the other stores in the mall with other things, NFL, you know, games or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. we, I think our budget for that was $275,000 and we drew 73,000 people. Jeez. And so I remember taking Tagliabu there on Saturday and it was like, what have we done here? You know, it was just, it was incredible. So the next year it got rebranded to the NFL experience. Well, now the NFL experience is, you know, 250,000 people will probably go through this in Atlanta this week. Um, it's something that brought it to the community. You know, you can't go to a sporting event anymore. A big time sporting event has their own, you know, final four experience. Right. All-star experience. You know, even when you go to a local game, you know, they've got to have that fan interactive thing now. So that was kind of built out of that and made you kind of understand that, okay, we've got to do more to keep people entertained during the four days that they're there. And then we started sanctioning events, Taste of the NFL, which is now in its 26th year, mm-hmm. you know, which is raising money for food banks and, 
and that sort of stuff. Uh, but that was typical. The golf tournament that former my former well, my good friend Matt Moore, former dolphin, uh, put together, you know, with clinics or whatever. I had a good friend that we put together the Super Bowl golf tournament, and then we, I think we got to the point where we were in Phoenix. We had 106 sanctioned events. Hmm. We might have gone too far when we sanctioned the the borough races or something. But <laughs> we, you know, we we tried to do something that could reach out to everybody and tried to get the local people involved in what was taking place, mm-hmm. and the people that came to town something to do for their four days, and realizing that we couldn't say you have to go straight down this line because this was what a football fan is. And we wanted to do more than that, so we had to have diversity in what was going on. Uh, so you got the gospel concert that's now carried on for about 20 years, you know, things like that, uh, NFL concert series and things. So that was really part of the focus that was there. And, and I think the thing I also then take, you know, which which Paul Tagliabue's right in the middle of it, most proud of, is that we then got a heart <laughs> Um, hmm. you know, we decided we had to give back to that community. And although we made all these events have charitable components, you know, we created the NFL Youth Education Town, mm-hmm. where we put a million dollars back into the community for a youth center for at-risk kids uh, in whatever community we were going into and uh, that type of stuff. So we were, we treated ourselves as the most important business in that community for the year. Uh, so I think that will happen. Now, to answer your other question on half times, um, that went through an evolution. Um, <laughs> it's hard, you know, we've gone through up with people. Uh, right. Last time we officially did a halftime show with them was 86. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, listeners were... remember that. The up with people was, <laughs> if you could describe that, probably better than I can. Well, it's up with people. I actually read something the other day that uh, Glenn Close was a member of Up with People. Oh, really? Which really, <laughs> yeah, okay. which really shocked me. Up with people basically had five troops of 150 or 200 kids, probably between the ages of 18 and 24, that traveled around the world as goodwill ambassadors, kind of singing songs and performing, and that was an education component for them. And, we bring four out of their five casts together to create a halftime show. And in those days when you were trying to fill the stadium with entertainment, you know, from goal line to goal line, uh, they did a great job. Did it in Miami, did it in, in Pontiac, did one for us in Pasadena, did one for us in, in Detroit mm-hmm. um, or in uh, New Orleans. And that the New Orleans one was kind of the end of it. We realized we were kind of at the end of that. And, uh I think Pete said to me, he says, never again. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, okay, I get it. So how did you move away from both... that? Well, we ended, up, we ended up trying to find a different producer every year to put something together. And a lot of it had to do with people that had Disney connections to a large degree, uh, some relationship with them because Disney was part of that. I mean, we were in a competition, you know, not officially, but unofficially with the Orange Bowl halftime show mm-hmm. in the 70s and the 80s. And so we were all doing that, you know, the magical light parade and that type of stuff that were Disney type events and things like that. And Bob Yanni, who worked for Disney and then did some for us and Dennis Despy and all sorts of people like that that did it. Now we got, we got to where we were in Minnesota. Uh, 
the highlight of that one, you know, is a winter wonderland, you know, Minnesota, featuring <laughs> Brian Bortano and, um, uh, oh gosh, Dorothy Hamill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we created fake ice and they skated on or whatever it was. And that was the year <clears throat> that Fox, who was not our partner, ambushed us with a show called In Living Color, mm. which was kind of an irreverent comedy right. show. And that went on the minute we started halftime and ended the minute the teams came back on the field. And we lost seven or so rating points hmm. at that point. So it got our attention. Uh, so a couple of us sat around literally two weeks after, probably when we went straight to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl. We're sitting there talking and we said, we got to do something about this. We said, who is the biggest name we could think we could go after and make a shot after? And we decided that was Michael Jackson. And so Arlen Cantarian, who worked for Radio City, and Don Garber, who now is commissioner of, of uh, soccer, MLS, uh, the three of us got together and went and met with Michael's agent, Sandy Gallen, uh, and broached the idea. Now, he, he had no idea what we were talking about. No, <laughs> didn't know. Didn't know what a Super Bowl was, you know, whatever it was. So we had to sell him initially on what the viability of it was, what could happen to him, you know, viewership, run through the list. And we probably met you know, two or three times with Michael himself. Uh, we hired, um, oh, God, I can't think of his name now. I'm gonna think of, he ended up doing about seven and a half time shows. Uh, but we ended up hiring him to, to put it all together. We met with him, and I think the last thing that sold it was we sitting with Mike and we said, yeah, okay, this game is going to be broadcast in these 180 countries. And you could see it in his eyes. And all of a sudden he said, are you telling me this game is broadcast live in places I'll never do a concert? We said, yes. Mm. He said, okay, I'm in. You know. <laughs> so and what year was that, Michael Jackson? 1993. 93. Yeah, and that was, it was a great show. Uh, totally different than where we've been. You had a star entertainer in the middle of this. Now, the problem was immediately thereafter, nobody wanted to do it because they didn't want to get compared to him. Mm. So we struggled. Uh, we actually struggled till 96 when uh, uh, Diana Ross came back and did the halftime show in Phoenix. And mm-hmm. you might remember that one, but we flew her out of the stadium in a helicopter. So, um, so we, we kept pursuing things and trying to do things differently. And and I think it, you know, we got names, we didn't get big names. And the thing that turned it back around now, all of a sudden to get the Katy Perry's was when you two did the halftime show, you know, at the Super Bowl after nine 11. Right. Um, That, that all of a sudden, because we'd gone after Bruce and we'd gone after the stones and we'd gone after the who and run through the list of all these people. and, And they did not want to do it. Why? What were their answers? Uh, I don't know. If they, uh, they, I don't know. Well, some of them said, you know, it's too commercial. <laughs> that okay. was interesting. Uh, but I think a lot of them were basically saying they couldn't envision themselves, you know, in the middle of this stage and what they would do, you know, with a show. Mm. And and I think when, you know, you 2 did it, all of a sudden they went, okay, yeah, I get it. We could do this. Um, and then when McCartney came back and did it, in 05 uh it was another really thing and then it just kind of took off from there the stones came back and did detroit you know the year after that and it took off from that point in time but 
it was an evolution for them to understand that they were, uh, uh, it was all possible to be done, you know? So, uh, anyway, it's, it's, uh, that really made a difference in how the, now we, we tried a couple times. One of my failures was uh, I wanted to come up with something that was a post game anthem. Mm. Uh, we had, we created at one point we had, uh, David Hedden with uh, NFL Film, or Tom Hedden with NFL Films, had put together music to create the Super Bowl anthem, which we thought was still a great piece of music. But the mm-hmm. problem is, we only play it once a year, so it didn't. It, that didn't, you know, click. Uh, we thought we'd come up with something to do post game. We we did the we did the first Super Bowl post game trophy presentation on the field in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And uh, had um, Cool and the Gang ironically playing the NFL Properties Party that day, so we got them to come over and play, you know, celebration, <laughs> you know, live on the field to, for that trophy presentation. Uh, and then came back and I tried tried with uh, John Bon Jovi to do something, um, but we couldn't get something. Got there. It was it was funny because you you start getting into it and. and you can appreciate this. The media would start going nuts, which I right. thought was given where they are now saying, well, you're all of a sudden delaying us two or three more minutes for us to be able to get our interviews and make our deadlines. And, right. you know, we, we were basically filling the dead time that was, uh, TV was out the commercial, right. Right. <laughs> you know, before they went to the trophy presentation. But so we, we lost that battle with the media, but, uh, on the anthem thing, let me quickly on the anthem thing. Is it kind of like you wanted that uh, NCA, the March Madness? They have that uh, one shining moment. Is that what you're kind of looking for? That kind of thing. Yeah, ironically, one shining moment um, was done for the Super Bowl. Really? <laughs> uh, and it was supposed to play. I want to say after the after a game in Pasadena in '93 or something like that. But they ran out of time because huh. they were they were getting to the A team, um, and they didn't they couldn't delay it any longer getting to the A team. <laughs> you mean the show, the A team? Yes, it was the premiere of the A team. Um, you know, so it it was actually I think written for the Super Bowl, but then got moved over to the Final Four. <laughs> God. What memories really stand out? I know you've gone over a few, but are there things that stand out to you about your Super Bowl's experience? Oh, I I think and there's there's a, a gazillion of them. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of personal things with different people in different communities, people that I worked with for 26 years. You know, moments in time. You know the Whitney Houston national anthem, the right. that Super Bowl in New Orleans after nine eleven. Um, you know any number of those. You know, you know, a hug from Diana Ross as she left <laughs> in her limo after the game in Detroit. You know, I you know, I could I just remember a lot of those things that took place. The the people that uh, you know I, we build up such a team of people that worked on the game, and now we don't see each other that much, which is really a shame. Mm-hmm. But there's so many shared experiences in what we did, and it was a such a collaborative effort of everybody trying to get better. And 
yeah, I, I think so fondly of so many people and everything. And, and I guess I'm forever grateful to, to Pete Rosell, you know, in, in those moments. And, you know, I remember I, I actually spent time with him about 10 days before he died. Mm. Um, and it was funny cause I'm sitting there and he was not doing well. Um, and all he wanted to ask me about was what we were going to do at the Friday night party. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that was to him. I think the Super Bowl was the escape from the rest of the drudgery that you had and mm-hmm. issues you had at the time with the league. Um, and so he got to enjoy that. And I thought that was always special, but you know, the Super Bowl experience ended so badly, you know, for him and his wife, Carrie, because, you know, Carrie's son died the day before the Super Bowl in Miami in 89. Mm. Uh, and so she never could come back again. Uh, mm. He only came back. He came back once because we made him come back to toss the coin in 91. But he never came back again. Um, but, you know, just very fond memories of a lot of times. You mentioned the party, the commissioner's party every Friday night before the Super Bowl. But I I know that these aren't league events, but what do you think of all the parties? I mean, the parties are kind of the, it's become <laughs> such a social event and not, you know, every magazine's got to have a party and you need to be on a list and this party and the Maxim party and the Playboy party and the Sports Illustrated party and the ESPN party. I mean, it's become a, a really uh, status symbol now, these parties, huh? Well, yeah, and it's, it, I think there's as many as 30,000 people that go to the Super Bowl now don't go to the game. Right. I'm one of those. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, yeah, well, the media's at the top of the list, and the, the players are the second on the list. Right. You know, they, they go make their appearances and go home on some their planes on Sunday morning, the number of players on them is amazing. Right. But uh, I never got to go to all those. All I remember was when we were in Houston for the game, my son, who at that point in time is 20, what was he, 22 or 23 or something like that, uh, all of a sudden I got him tickets for the Madison party, the Playboy party with a couple of his body buddies, and he thought he was in the seventh heaven, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, – I think that's part of what's been great about it is all these other things that were there and – and I think that's part of, if you look at the old term, you know, Roselle, I think, in his, in his vision for this dating back to the 60s was, you know, let's play this game basically in the entertainment capitals of America, Miami and L.A., and try to get this thing attached to celebrities. And, of course, you, you see those old pictures of Super Bowl One and the, you know, the stars that are, are hanging around, the Kirk Douglases and people like that mm-hmm. that are in the stands and you know, he gets to Miami and then it's Jackie Gleason. And so it's, it's, I think he really thought that's what he wanted to attract was the, to make it some sort of celebrity type thing. And it's certainly gone way beyond what I think he would ever have imagined it being, uh, that everybody's got to be there doing something somehow. And the parties are part of it. And, and he thought that the Friday night party was, was part of what he wanted to get done because he thought it was important for the league to have a, a signature moment, a, a get into that not everybody can get into. Right. <laughs> right. And even though it ended up for 5,000 people or something like that, That's right. it, was, it, it, was, it was viewed as something that you, you got into that. It was a, you, you kind of made it. I'd stop. So, although I'll tell you, I'll tell you my best 
story on that one. You'll love yeah. this one. Uh, you, you probably remember Jan Van Duzer. Uh-huh. Uh, and Jan, a uh, very quiet, you know, reserved type person. He always wanted to re- work the will call booth at the Friday night party. And he convinced me that that's a great place to work because you could take out all your frustrations all week long. <laughs> okay. So we're we're in New Orleans. And, you know, you're getting every story you can ever imagine. Right. Somebody and left me these, yeah. Trying, yeah, I left the tickets and I left in my room. So, you know, Bob Kraft's going to drop them off for me, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Uh, and so I'm at the booth and this guy comes up to me and he says, uh, yeah, I'm supposed to have two tickets left in my name. I said, I'm sorry, they're not here. Well, Jim Steve was supposed to leave them for me. I said, 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 well, when did you talk to Jim? He said, well, you know, I talked to him uh, this morning, you know, probably about 10 o'clock. And I said, well, you know, I I know at 10 o'clock he was in a meeting. I don't know if you could talk to him. Well, it was probably a little later in the day. I said, I think he was at the, Halftime rehearsal. So let me go back and check. So I walked away, and Van Duzer walks out to the guy. And says, "Do you do? You do realize who you were talking to?" <laughs> the guy runs away. So yeah, that's a good one. I do want to ask because you mentioned the entertainment capitals, Miami, LA, and you know, there's you haven't mentioned this, but you know, let's be real. There seems to be this sort of quid pro quo with public financing of stadiums, and you know, last year in Minnesota, and this year in Atlanta before maybe we do get to some kind of rotation with Miami and new stadium in LA and some of these entertainment capitals. But was that part of the sort of, uh, awarding of Super Bowls in your day? It seems to be kind of a thing the past several years. Well, I think we went, um, you know, Detroit was an aberration, I would right. say, uh, and that, because I know this is staggering for anybody to think of, but, there were two things that swayed the Detroit vote. One is their presentation was done in a multimedia fashion Mm -hmm. with video and still photos and satellite feeds from people from Detroit and stuff. And the guys, the owners were like, wow, you know, they'd never, I mean, you'd think that these multimillionaires had seen this was like, they'd never seen a presentation like this. And then they threw in the kicker was we'll give you free rent. And so we never had to add free rent until that point. Hmm. And so I think that swayed that one. But I think, the, you know, Tampa got the game in 84. Uh, Leonard Levy's hard work down there to do that. Um, but again, it still at least kept you in the South. Uh, Pete wanted to go to San Francisco because, you know, he, he had worked at USF. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was important. So and then San Diego fell into the next one, another you know, Southern city and everything. I don't think it really changed until you got to the two thousands. Right. And then you start looking at, I mean, Atlanta got a game because they were building a new stadium. There's no doubt about that, but we just done that same thing for Joe Robbie in Miami mm-hmm. uh, in 89. So I think that was the pitch for them. And nobody really thought we thought of Atlanta as the South. Right. Um, we learned in 94 that it can have ice storms just right. like they learned in 2000 and are learning today. Exactly. Um, but I think that it was, um, I think it really changed. It might've changed a lot. Uh, Jacksonville, Detroit, you know, we kind of went through a run of those places. Houston, it was tied to, to the uh, team being awarded an expansion franchise. They literally, uh, 
had a handshake that they were going to get a Super Bowl once the expansion franchise mm-hmm. was awarded. Uh, I, I think that I think that uh, McNair paid another hundred million dollars, <laughs> knowing that they were going to get a Super Bowl. So, um, yeah, I think it changed. You know, this century, it was not as much a part of something. Certainly not in the seventies. Tiny bit in the eighties because we we diversified with San Diego, Tampa, San Francisco. Um, a little bit more in the nineties, but I think it was this century that really changed it. It's been really fascinating, Jim. Any any final comments? Any thoughts on? Obviously, you haven't been involved with these games for a while now, and but you sort of created this legacy, created this entertainment experience. Has it even surprised you, kind of how big the game is, how big the ratings are, how big the the, the charge for commercials? Does any of that ever surprise you anymore? You just feel like, yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, I think that's partially it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing we didn't touch upon that I really think made a difference in this game Mm -hmm. happened in the early 80s with, I would say, three things. One of them started in the 90s. One was USA Today. Uh, I think USA Today was able to cover the Super Bowl starting in 1980. I think we played the game in L.A. in 80, and I want to think USA Today started in L.A. as their second market that week of the Super Bowl. Uh, and that all of a sudden meant that we're instead of sending one writer from the Miami Herald to cover the game in LA, you now had to send three hmm. because you were competing with what was going on that somebody else could pick up for a quarter, you know, that was going to have eight stories on the Super Bowl. So right. I, I think that has a big impact. The other one is satellite and particularly ESPN. Um, you know, it used to be that you'd, you'd have these press conferences on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and people take a videotape and put it in a pouch and put it on an airplane and send it home. Right. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, obviously now, but starting in the 80s with ESPN, you know, these things were getting broadcast live, uh, which changed the way it was all covered. And so you went from having very few local TVs come, I mean, I won't say local, but national local i mean you have all the la people there for the super bowl in la or something like that but you, mm-hmm. you now have the people from wherever other places around it. and i think that changed it and i think the third one was sports radio mm-hmm. um it was in 1992 um mike and the mad dog in new york decided they wanted to go to minnesota to do a week <laughs> doing the game really? and that was unheard of and the next, now you've got this radio rolling. You know, right. It's not radio rolling anymore. It's radio building. It's radio conference, right? yeah. Yeah. So it's it's changed so much. And I think the way the media is covered has really changed. And now, of course, you go to Radio Row and you're hardly even talking about Super Bowl, right? Everybody's selling something. Um, right. You know, I'll put Phil Montana on and he'll talk about his experiences. And then, of course, he's selling something. Right, right, right. And all these players are brought Um, down there by sponsors to talk, like you said, five minutes about their season and then three minutes about the new uh, Cheerios brand they're promoting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think those three things really changed. They always accused us of overhyping it. And I was trying to say, where where did we do that? Where did the (laughs) league do that? I don't think the league ever did that, Yeah, you know. so I, yeah, it's. 
I think that's a, those things had a great impact on it. And, and that's how the thing has changed now. I mean, the, the number of media covering stuff, I mean, you know, look at last night. Um, yeah, the that media was a, night. Somebody, somebody sent me a picture today of media day, which was a Tuesday, uh, for the Broncos and the Cowboys. And if you saw that, there probably were 125 media members there. You know, now I'm not even sure the media are there. You know, some of them were talking about, well, they don't go because it's about everything. I can't get an interview yeah. out of that thing. So, you know, they wait till the other things are done more individual later in the week. But, uh, you know, that's turned into a massive marketing, you know, extravaganza for the league. So everything, everybody's trying to get something a little bit bigger and a little bit more. Uh, yeah, it does kind of grow exponentially each year. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, in our 45 minutes together, we have not mentioned anything about kind of football. And, you know, and I think that what happens in these weeks is whether this is intentional or not in what you created here is you get to Sunday midday and you're like, well, wait a minute. Oh, there's a game. There's a game. There's a game tonight. Uh, These teams are. Well, you know, the toughest thing, the toughest thing for these, for the team, the greatest thing is Patriots has been through this nine times. So, but, you know, we used to prepare a checklist for them that was about 12 pages long, you know, mm. where am I buying flowers for my party or for whatever, where, you know, where do I find babysitters for the players, kids, or you know, stuff like that. And there's so much that goes into moving, you know, yourself and your entire extended family to a city for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the ones that master that are usually the ones that win, but, we always tried to, we went overboard to try, you know, that didn't stop, you know, coaches from trying to find some issue, you know, the infamous Bud Grant, <laughs> they knew we were going to lose. They gave us the smaller locker room, mm. you know, that type of stuff. They always find something to rally around. Belichick complaining about the practice field in Jacksonville or something, you know, but we really tried to pay attention, make sure it was the best we could do for them. It was taken care of. But you're right. You forget about him to a large <laughs> degree, and everybody's doing something else because, you know, Tom Brady's not out partying tonight, I don't think. Right. Well, maybe he is tonight. Um, but did Roselle and Lee and Tagliboo have a sense that this would be much more than football? You know, that this would be an entertainment experience, kind of an American, I don't know, American tradition beyond. And then, of course, the commercials and everything else and sort of football would be part of it, but much bigger than football. Did you get a sense that that was all in your thinking back then? I don't know. I think that Pete always believed that we had to do everything around the game to make it bigger because he couldn't count on 20 to 19 with a missed field goal in the last second of the game. Um, And he he was going to get 55 to 17 games. And he, he had to count on other things that, that really drew your attention to it. And he knew he was going to be reaching fans that were not avid football fans. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was going to get the grandmother in, you know, Iowa sitting there with the granddaughter watching the game or something like that. So I, I think, yeah, I think that was there. But I think a lot of this, you know, happened by chance in a lot of ways. 
Uh, I, I don't think I, I'm never going to say that we had a master plan mm-hmm. to get there. We had a, you know, probably had a three year thought process because that's where we knew we were going for the next three years. Um, I mean, the one thing I always kind of felt one of the funniest comments I, I ever got and, and the guy was dead. So we'd hired a new marketing guy at the league. This has to be, you know, 2000, 2001 or something like that. And he sits in a meeting and he says, you know, we have to rebrand this in a lot of ways because nobody knows that the Super Bowl is an NFL game. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there dumbfounded. Like, what did he just say? You know, but maybe there was some truth to that. That, you know, the greatest thing about the Super Bowl was whenever you do those big charts that, you know, your popularity and things like that, you know, we'd always be way up in the far right hand corner because there's no negatives attached to it. Yeah. You know, the NFL would be in a different thing because you'd have issues with players or whatever it would be. So you've got a different popularity or a different feeling of it. There's nothing negative that goes around the Super Bowl until you got the Janet Jackson that, that really went around it. So, um, that was really one of the things that uh, made it stand out. Yeah. And when great. you're going into Go a ahead. city yeah. like Atlanta, when you're going into a city like Atlanta, until you got the last weekend, there's nothing they could talk about except the preparation and things going on. Yeah. Because you can't talk about the teams. Now all of a sudden you can talk about the teams. That's right. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of prep work that goes in, I mean, give us a sense, you know, when, when are you working on the game how far out? A year? Eight months? Oh no, it's two years. Longer than that. I, I, when the bid when the bid is awarded, you probably worked with the bidding cities for three to six months to prepare their bid because you want a lot of the issues addressed. Right, you get that up address there. up front, right? It, and then over the next three years, yeah, you'd probably go to the city two times when you're three years out and three or four times, two years out, and then you're probably spending 100, 110 days there. Wow. Um, you know, the, the last, at least I was. Uh, there's an awful lot of people. The, uh, I can't remember what the number was. It was, we actually could, <laughs> the deals we were making with hotels to house us were based on the, not just the length of stay well, during the Super Bowl, but the advanced planning trips, which mounted into thousands of hotel room nights. Mm-hmm by people that were coming in to do whatever the heck it was going to be. So we had to cut a rate, get a rate done for us for all those other period of times. Jeez. Quite a business, this business of the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. And well, in terms, it really is, it, it really is a business. I, I, you know, I'm proud of the fact that, or maybe I, I shouldn't be, but you know, we had the largest, our department had the largest budget in the league hmm. um, by far. Um, and it only makes sense. I mean, we Super Bowl alone was going to be, you know, forget the revenue. It was going to be a seventy-five, eighty-five million dollar expense item, which was bigger than most things. Anything else you could think of, league. Then you throw in the draft and the Pro Bowl and American Bowls and things like that. It got even higher. But uh, yeah, we had a pretty hefty budget with this. And um, and but the best thing you can always have in any of these deals is you have a great boss that gives you the freedom to experiment and try things and and not you know knowing that you're going to make the right decision there and not all of them are going to work but a lot of them are going to work and you want to take i think you know pete and paul both took pride in the fact that 
there were things that we did that all of a sudden became staples in not just football, but entertainment. Mm -hmm. oh, there's no doubt about that. You change entertainment throughout. And, and the Super Bowl has become, as I started the podcast, I think it's, it's not overstatement to say a national holiday. And uh, Yeah, Paul used to say that all the time. That was always his thing, you know, that this is a national holiday. And I agree with you. I mean, there are a lot of people, that, a lot of blurry-eyed people to come in on Monday morning, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, and now we've got these two overtime championship games, a lot of controversy. We got Tom Brady. We got the Rams. I mean, there, there's just so much to it, and it uh, just gets bigger and bigger. And a big reason yeah, and I know the that. guys down there, it, it, it's scary that you think of how much work has gone into so many people to be able to put on something in the last three and a half hours. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, and and it's, uh, I, I'll, I'll say this, is that when we went to Atlanta in 94, um, in a lot of ways, Atlanta wanted that game partially because of the New Georgia Dome, but secondarily is they wanted to show the the IOC that they were going to be able to host major events. And so, you know, we, I think we awarded that game in May of 90 and they awarded the Olympics in October mm. of 90. And I think that the Super Bowl had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Now our problem was the Olympics and the promotion around that and kind of overshadowed what we were going to, we were doing. And when you get in a meeting, they'd always start talking about Olympics and get away from us. I remember going back, I want to say like six months or a year after the Olympics and talking to hotel people and almost to a man, they said the Super Bowl was way better than the Olympics, yeah. you know, from them from a revenue standpoint and everything, which I thought, which I thought was a great compliment. And quickly, you mentioned that 75 to 85 million nut for the Super Bowl. And what would revenue be off of that? Well, I left, we were about two fifty. Okay. So I, I, who knows what it is these days? I mean, the ticket prices are, I mean, ticket prices when I left were only about $500. Now they're as much as five grand. So yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big difference in what's taking place. I mean, um, you know, you're still making concessions and, and the, their deals in a lot of ways with the, and what, what costs are picked up by the host committee that used to be picked up by the league. There's a big difference in how that's handled these days yeah. too. So, um, both sides of the equation, you know, revenues have gone up and, and costs have come down to some extent. Yeah. Well, it is something, this national holiday you helped create. Jim Steig, <laughs> you must feel great every year around this time, and uh, just so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being with me. Well, it's nice It's nice to be remembered. Those yeah. of us that have faded into the woodwork. I said it's funny, when I worked for the Chargers for six years, uh -huh. I was so proud of that time because we had, you know, we had the best six-year run ever in the history of the Chargers. I think we were 68 and 27 mm -hmm. with five division titles and all the stuff we did down there and 48 straight sellouts and all. Nobody ever remembers I did that. <laughs> all right, you're the Super Bowl guy. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't. I, I said, I remember when I went to work for Sean White to do an event for him, I said, I could do the worst job ever and it's never going to affect my legacy. That's who I am, you know. <laughs> I can have the greatest event ever, Sean. Nobody will ever talk to me about ever having done it. Right. <laughs> well, you're certainly remembered during this week, and I'm really uh, happy to have you, Jim. Okay, well, I really appreciate you, you contacting me, and this was fun. 
Really hope you enjoyed that interview with Jim Steig as much as I did doing it. What a story of getting the Super Bowl where it is today. No one more singularly behind it than Jim Steig. Now a word from Peter Millar. I was never loyal to one brand of clothing. I'd open my closet, grab whatever's in there. Then I got my first Peter Millar polo game changer. Now my closet is filled with Peter Millar everywhere. Very comfortable fit. The more clothing I own, the more impressed I am. It's so comfortable. From the feel to the look, it's just better. The stitching, the zippers, the attention to detail. I have the Peter Millar polos, the sports shirts, the quarter zips. They all look great, make me look sharp. I can go from work to dinner, feeling great, looking even better wearing Peter Millar. So head on over to petermillar.com slash business, all caps, business. Experience the quality for yourself. You'll see some of my favorite styles. Be sure to use my link. You'll receive a complimentary shipping and a free hat. That's petermillar, M-I-L-L-A-R, dot com slash business. petermillar.com slash business. Now it's time to hear from you. I answer questions on the Business of Sports podcast. You can leave me a voicemail at 484-416-5654. 484-416-5654. Always happy to answer these great questions that come in on voicemail every week. And this week's question is from... The UK. Listeners over there are happy to have you. This is Tom. Hi, Andrew. Uh, I just had a question about uh, quarterbacks, in particular uh, Lamar Jackson. So we hear more and more about um, how he's being used uh, primarily as a runner and how successful the Ravens have been off the back of that. Um, given that there are so many rules in place to protect quarterbacks, if he were to suffer some kind of career-ending injury or, or injuries that would shorten his career, uh, does he have a case against coaches or NFL for, for misusing him in his position or anything about how uh, he might have expected to be used as a quarterback if he's running excessively and putting his health at risk? Is there a potential lawsuit there in the world of CTE and, and concussions coming to the fore? Uh, I'd be interested to know if, if there will be lawyers. Uh, look hearing from the Thanks, Tom. Thanks for calling in from the UK. I mean, listen, of course there will be lawyers. There are always lawyers. That's my catchphrase on Twitter. And otherwise, it just happens that they are they sprout up when there's money to be made. And I'm a lawyer, and I don't say that pejoratively. I think that's what they're there for, to protect people. But sometimes lawsuits don't have a place. In other words, they're not going to have much muster, and this would be one of those cases. Listen, Lamar Jackson subjecting himself to injury and potentially even brain injury it's part of the game and here's the problem for Lamar Jackson or any player about concussions or CTE now I understand there's big settlements from retired players have been in the news for years and years especially players that played long ago but we're in a different era now as everyone knows you can't you must be living under a rock if you don't know any link between football and potential brain trauma And CTE studies have been out there very public about former players having their brains dissected, especially by Dr. Anne McKee at Boston University, and finding an overwhelming percentage of those brains donated by football players to have CTE. Now, again, sample is subjective. These are players going through issues at the end of life. They wanted their brains donated. Now, players that are happy and living a fulfilling life are probably not going to have their brains donated. But that's where we are, and I just think Lamar Jackson or anyone is going to have a real problem 
trying to prove any uh, liability or negligence on behalf of the NFL or concealment. These are the charges in the original concussion lawsuit, negligence, concealment, fraud, misrepresentation, back long ago when the science was allegedly there and the NFL disowned it or didn't feel the need to express it to players. Well, here we are. It's out there now. Everyone's talking about it. We got a movie with Will Smith. We got League of Denial. We got constant interviews on ESPN and other channels with players going through issues. We have constant in the news about the dangers of football. We have constant news about uh, what is being done to address these concussion issues, much more so than other contact sports like soccer, lacrosse, whatever it is. It's all about football. So, I understand, you know, Lamar Jackson or someone like that exposing himself to injury, but that is done knowingly. And for a player to sort of bring up a lawsuit after the fact, the only way maybe it would have a chance is if going into it, Lamar Jackson or his agent basically said, we want you to make him a drop back passer so he's better on later in life with injuries. And they ignored that and they had some kind of pact whether tacit or explicit. So I think that's unlikely at best. Anyway, Tom, thanks for the call from UK and great question. Again, I'll answer all questions uh, that come in or any any ones that catch my attention like Tom's did at 484-416-5654. Now to our sponsor, Bet Online. You know, this is it. It's the biggest game of the year, days away. This has been since opening weekend. There's only one place at Podcast One that has the action you're looking for, and that's betonline.ag. Betonline.ag, use promo code PODCAST1, 50% sign-up bonus. Yes, 50%. So if you missed out before on jumping in the NFL action, here's your chance. you got one game left. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Use promo code PODCAST1 for 50% sign-up bonus today on betonline.ag. Rams v patriots super bowl in atlanta this sunday the most exciting game of the year is here don't miss out betonline.ag that'll do it for this week's version of the business of sports with andrew brandt thanks to my producer extraordinaire brian neal really appreciate all of you that follow me on twitter at andrew brandt listen on apple Podcasts. you know rankings and comments are always appreciated there and we'll be back next week with another edition of the business of sports with andrew brandt Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.